I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes Shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Every fortnight we'll be answering all the important and topical footballing questions of the day, like why is the word want-away only used in football, and what's the best kind of hat for a manager to throw into the ring. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes. Anyway, that's quite enough from me. Time to hit play. Andy, tell us what you want this podcast to be and why have we started it? Well, I've got a story to illustrate that from Stockport. One of my flatmates who was at college in Manchester and used to go to Edgeley Park in Stockport, a time when Stockport were doing really badly. They finished in the bottom half of the fourth division for some like 10 years in a row this kind of grinding mediocrity and one day they were two nil down three nil down but they had a, a moment of possession in their opponent's half and there's this voice imploring voice from the crowd suddenly shouted out go on then visit about a bit and that's what I think we should be aiming to do when you talk about football is to visit about a bit because as football fans you can always find things to enjoy or feel engaged by even in sort of mundane circumstances I think as a sort of philosophy of life visit about I think that's good yeah I think now I think you've got got you've got to advance a bit and say I think you need to take it to the next stage and our tempo is important I think that's the other thing. I'm like, in Northern League, every every year there's a new expression that's shouted out, and good tempo. I think that's what I'll be looking for tempo from you, Andy. Right. <laughs> Keep your tempo. So we're going to have a DNA, like it's supposed to run through clubs now, isn't it? I don't know what the DNA is. Like some, is that a helix? It's a helix. It's something you get where you have to have. Like they a... say it's imprinted in their DNA, isn't it? That's it. It's always like 
a swab inside your mouth, I think, and they decide if, you, if your saliva's okay. Or is that not. what you were doing when I walked in? I was wondering what that was all that's, about. That's what, that's what that was. No, the DNA, yeah, the DNA, it has to be, impr- it has to be imprinted in it. But it's all, the thing that's imprinted in their DNA is always attractive football as well, yeah. isn't it? No club, every club has a tradition or in their DNA of playing attractive football. In terms of topics then, Harry, you'll be looking forward to discussing Champions League, VAR, all of these different things. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I think that's what we need. We, need, we certainly need more dis- people, more people whose views are completely irrelevant talking about what VAR and whether it's been applied properly. Yeah. That's the, the world is short of that. Yeah. There's not enough, you know, because every time Alan Shearer comes on, I think, I'd like to hear more of your views on VAR, Alan, because they're highly influential. It's certainly a hot topic as well. It's certainly got people like, talking, <laughs> as we are now. In, in, the pubs, in the pubs and clubs of Britain, people are talking about that. Because it's, it's, that's why football actually exists, which people forget now. People think that football's a game that's for enjoyment, but actually it's simply to provide talking points. A lot of talking points in this game. That's a talking point. That's what football's for, is for creating talking points. Andy, what's behind the decision to start the podcast then? Whereabouts is the print magazine? Uh, well, when Saturday Comes is doing relatively okay compared to most a lot of other print magazines, but um, we're, at the, we're at the point where we could do with generating some extra income from what we do that isn't uh, either the print magazine or anything we get from our website. And we've been thinking for a while about doing a podcast and doing various other things, including live events. Uh, we've got our 400th issue coming up next year. We've got various ideas to promote that. But really, we need a bit of an injection of uh, income, really, from other sources. And we've built up over a long period of time a kind of a a loyal readership and we did kind of wonder whether maybe whether some of our readers would be interested in, in helping to contribute to the magazine's kind of financial security to some extent so I mean it's something we wanted to do anyway but it, it's also it seemed like the obvious way for us to try and generate some other income we uh, we stopped taking gambling advertising last year which cost us a fair, it was the right thing for us to do but that did kind of affect our our sources of income a fair bit so we're trying to look into sort of replicate some of some of the income that we, we no longer receive. As this is our first podcast, I want to ask you about your footballing firsts. What were the first football words and phrases you learnt, Andy? Right, well, the first one that came, comes to mind for me is thwart, because there were always um, picture captions in, in kids' uh, magazines and, and books. Um, a goalkeeper or a centre-half thwarting a striker. When you were a little kid, any word with three consonants at the start looks bizarre. So it was a word I started to use in conversation when I was about six or seven. Obviously, adults thinking, this kid's a freak. You know, what's he talking about? Thwarting. What, what does he mean? The other one was similar. It was dynamo and dynamic. There'd be midfield dynamos or, or the people who were dynamic. Again, not a word I really understood. And the, the, the other one that struck, uh, sort of came to mind was that in the football sticker albums, which are the first, one of the first things I kind of, first football memorabilia type things I, I, I collected, um, Francis Lee was famously described as a chunky raider, which is a fantastic <laughs> description, two-word description of Francis. He'd never been better, because that's exactly what he was. He was a chunky raider. So chunky was another word that I kind of learned through football, plus all those other phrases that I suppose became cliches, like goalkeepers being custodians, centre-halves being pivots, um, wingers being, you know, kind of pacey wingman, which sounds like one of Richard Nixon's Watergate cabinet, like <laughs> Holderman, Ehrlichman, pacey wingman. He's got a deep sixes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, really, it was, it was individual words I didn't understand, but that kind of stuck in my mind, you know, like... like Where do you think this lexicon came from? A journalist training school is a, a language unique to football. It is, yeah. And it's also, it, it's evolved a fair bit over a period of time. I know that there was, um, a, a, some point in the 1990s, I think, 
Salman Rushdie wrote a spoof match report that was supposed to be in the style of sort of a cliched sort of football journalism. But as Brian Glanville rather testily pointed out in, in one of his <laughs> columns, he got all his cliches wrong because all the cliches he was using were from the 1950s. But he thought, yeah. evidently thought that this was the modern way of football writing. And they, he, so it was the, the worst possible thing, which satire that misunderstood its target. But, but that was the weird thing is that often when people people wrote things about football, they started saying it's a game. It was a game of two halves, as if that yeah. made, somehow that would that would engage their audience rather than repel them with yeah. their condescension. Yeah. But there was a whole. My friend Steve Marshall who did write a few things for Saturday comes many years ago. Once when he was living in Spain, he compiled this football lexicon, which he said you would be able to write a match report from, which included like thicket of legs. Shot through a thicket of legs or a forest oh, of legs. Drove the ball home through a forest of legs. Yeah, which exactly. we had. In, we had a, some illustrations. One, I think it might be one of our Christmas books of of those sorts of things. Yeah. And there's somebody. One of them is somebody driving a car with a ball in the passenger seat, and both of them looking really disconcerted because they're driving through. But a I forest don't think a, fo- a forest of legs doesn't exist in any no. other context than no. football, does it? Or a thicket? And he said, you know, and it was always the cruel deflection. Yeah, always the the deflection was never morally ambivalent. It was either lucky. It was cru- it always had something attached to it. It never just it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a, you know a thing of fate. Yeah, it was, and the famous Wembley turf really takes its toll on tired legs. That's right. It sapped. It was yeah. sapping, Andy. Yeah. The turf. It was sapping. It literally was draining. It was some sort of some strange process of osmosis that it kind of yeah the energy went into it. So you presume then that the turf at Wembley was filled with this energy that yeah. had sapped from the players' legs, and probably probably after they left was bouncing around. It was probably a gypsy curse. It probably oh the gypsy oh, oh a, the, a, a Roma curse. Roma, a Roma, yes, Roma curse. Yes, because Wilf Mannion. When I interviewed Wilf Mannion, he said that that Middlesbrough in the cup. That they, they, the fact they could never get past the quarter final of the FA Cup. Wilf Mannion said, "Oh, that was, you know, it was." A, and George Hardwick said the same thing. It was a gypsy curse. That, but why only affected the FA Cup and not the league? Yeah, very it, niche. A very niche. It was curse. a niche curse. <laughs> well, we thought maybe because because you know the, the FA Cup was a sort of, had a kind of nomadic yeah. sort of feel to it, didn't it? it? Kind of moved the cup itself. I don't know, but the league would be the same. I don't know it why. May, it may have been someone who did curses, but only did knockout competitions. That's like a, yeah. A, 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 because a Barry Fry, there was some. Where Barry Fry yeah, Barry was Fry supposedly um, defied a Roma curse on Birmingham City's ground by wing and four four corners. He of was the told that's what he had to do, and he memorably said, "It's not as easy for a human being as it is for a dog, or something yeah. like that." You know, a dog would have been easy for it to just wing, but a man has to sort of stop and then start. It was quite tricky. Yeah, and taking a lot of fluid in between. Taking, taking, yeah, taking on fluid, Andy. Yeah. Yes. Oh, well, I, I, Rehydrating. I thought of that. Taking on fluid. He was rehydrating. No players ever drink. They always, they always rehydrate or take on fluid. But hearing the word deflection reminds me of one that I've never heard outside football, which is ricochet. Oh. I've never heard that in real life. You, you haven't been. I think you've been reading. You haven't been reading enough books on the Kennedy assassination. I'm sure there's a. I'm sure a ricochet maybe. I just always remember um, Jack Charlton co-commentating a Middlesbrough v Newcastle game in the early nineties and going, "I think it's took a ricochet." <laughs> the, the other word that's often used is sumptuous. A sumptuous finish. A sumptuous finish. But but men, the sort of men who would never use the word sumptuous. They <laughs> so just can't imagine. I think that might also be. I think maybe Dan Maskell used to say that in tennis. He used to say that in tennis, but he quite often crops up on match of the day under yeah. the football president. You know, they say, "Oh, and it's a sumptuous." You know, what, when would when would you ever use the word sumptuous? <laughs> How's your cheese sumptuous. sandwich? Sumptuous. Sumptuous. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's not always sumptuous. Fulminating was another as well, isn't it? Fulminating. A fulminating volley. Ones I can remember hearing only in football and playing them in real life stalwart yes yeah a certain type of footballer 
Long-serving, probably. Probably a centre-half. Yeah, not necessarily a regular, but someone who'd, who'd, be, who'd, be, who'd be brought in. Um, also, a utility. A utility player, which I think I, I wrote in WC once, was someone who had the ability to kick any other player on any part of his anatomy in any area of the pitch. <laughs> so Paul Madeley was yes, the classic was, utility yeah, player, yeah. wasn't he? Do you get um, utility people? I suppose it's someone, a, a jack-of-all-trades, isn't it? Well, really? you get a utility belt, don't you, I suppose. <laughs> in, well, in Batman. Something like that, if you're a superhero, you do, anyway. <laughs> Stalwart, yes. I had a judged down as well. A judged... Don't oh, really hear that anywhere yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, no, that's yeah. it, yeah. I would like in handball, a judge to have handled the ball. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. not judged, a judged. Yeah. Supremo, or Supremo, I'm not sure, because I've never pronounced it out yeah. loud, but for manager. Mar, I don't hear the word marring, marred by violence and right. things yeah. elsewhere. Mired, I'm just yeah. going through the M's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hapless, a favourite of Hapless, yours. Hapless is a favourite of mine. And part of the reason I was thinking of Hapless is I, one, the first thing I ever had published in When Saturday Comes was a letter I wrote with a Czech oh, friend yes. of mine, Andre Toman. About Sibutio. About Sibutio. And at the end, he used the Czech phrase, a sparrow in the hand is better than a pigeon on the gatepost. He put it in Czech. Which I think, anyway, but, but Andre had this thing about invincible. And he used to say, if someone lost, he used to say, ah, you know, Liverpool have been vinced. <laughs> and because there's no, you know, the, no, you know, the vincible thing. No, I've never heard. Yeah, so hapless. Yeah, people. Teams. Are, I mean, indeed, we just read about that. That Arthur Horsfield scored his debut for Borough uh, on his debut for Borough. The debut also made his bow. Another yeah. phrase. Sort of, and, the, and against hapless Grimsby, a six-nil thrashing of hapless Grimsby. <laughs> so whether Grimsby arrived with their hap and then lost it, or just never had any hap in the first place, we don't know. There are phrases as well that I've only heard in the footballing arena. Come a cropper. Can't imagine using that in any other circumstance whatsoever and the defence was at sixes and sevens yes absolutely beautiful yeah, it probably has its origins in the Black Death or something. One of those kind of words that comes from, you know. Yeah, but I don't think some of those things have like they've been used so often that they can't you can't remember that. It's like the thing he used to say about a striker who was a have boots will travel yes, striker, right. yeah, which yeah. must have come from some was it like the Wild West or have guns will travel, <laughs> but like have boots will travel. Yeah, in the late sixties, early seventies, that was Frank. Great name again, Frank Large. Frank. Who played for several different clubs and was invariably described as a hand. Yeah, and I think there was a sort of Ernie Moss as well. There were a few of those ones. Tony Hatley as well. So yeah, there was a, a Hugh Macklemore. Often they were the sort of homing pigeon strikers. He went, they sort of kept going back to the same club repeatedly, didn't they? Hugh Macklemore always went back to Carlisle at some point. Like a pigeon coming home to roost. During the transfer speculation, I also enjoy issuing a come and get me plea. Yes. Yeah, well, once want away. <laughs> once away, away striker. Once away striker. Once away. I mean, again, not, nothing you'd ever hear. You'd never sort of say that was, I was, <laughs> it's a once away husband or once away wife, would you? <laughs> you know, but that would be an obvious thing to apply, it would be but never. <laughs> Any more examples as you thought about this in a spontaneous manner right now, Harry? Oh, well, stanchion as well, yes. or stanchion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stanchion, a word again, you know. I think a lot of people must have learned that word from, was it the Clive Allen free kick at Coventry that got stuck in the, and Jimmy Hill said it repeatedly, didn't he? Stanchion or stanchion. Stanchion, yeah. No one had really ever thought how it was pronounced or thought what even what it was until that moment. Make sure you never miss an issue of When Saturday Comes by subscribing today. Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue one in 1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information. Okay, in this next section, which we're calling Record Breakers, we are going to present to you some of the great music 
from football's illustrious musical past, all taken from the wonderful 45football.com website. We've each made a selection for your listening pleasure. Harry, tell us about yours and I'll put it on in the background. Fantastic. It's um, Basil Bowley and Chris Waddle. We've got a feeling... And I particularly, I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a bouncy tune. You can, know, it's a good, it's a good tune, and Basile seems all right on it. But for some reason, Chris Waddle adopts during his rap parts, he adopts the accent of a British person talking to a foreigner. Not his normal voice at all. This strange sort of, I'm talking to a foreigner, so I better sort of make a vague foreign accent. And he also uses the phrase, "rubber balls we're kicking." I can't ever think when Chris Wall's ever been kicking rubber balls and then what maybe in the sausage factory maybe a towel or it could have been there he certainly he certainly is his accents particularly but it's a good song very lovely cover the two lads together smart casual Yes, Mark Casual. I mean, Chris was, you know, he's a, forget that he was quite, he's quite a good, he's quite a good-looking guy. You know, he's like, you know, you kind of forget with, with the old mullet days. Once he got out there, he went all kind of, he went all kind of Miami Vice didn't he, when he was out there. We had a story in the mag once of somebody who was, I can't remember, was somewhere in Europe and got to talk. I think it might actually be in Bulgaria. Got to uh, talking about football and stuff, and the Bulgarian chap he was talking to, there were two English guys talking to one Bulgarian guy. Suddenly said, "Who is your lovely one?" And they kind of looked at each other and said, "Pardon." And he said, who is your lovely one? And they, they, given that he realised they didn't understand what he was saying, he said, my lovely one is Chris Waddle. He meant, who's your favourite player? <laughs> Definitely going to adopt that now. It'll go down <laughs> well, your I lovely think. One? <laughs> Certainly. Well, you know, I think that's a pretty good that Chris Waddle be a good choice as a lovely one. <laughs> Andy, tell us about your own musical choice. Right, this is um, the Sammy Herkstein Experience, a song about VFL Bochum. It's called Deutsche Meister via Nier der VFL. I probably haven't pronounced that very well, which is VFL will never be German champions. VFL Bochum in the 70s and 80s was something like in the Bundesliga, the equivalent of Coventry City uh, in the in the UK at the time that they neither qualified for Europe nor got relegated. They're just kind of there uh, in in the Bundesliga. And I went to a, a Bochum game once uh, with the person who made this record, a, a friend of mine, Christoph, who's a, a German journalist. Which is the coldest I've ever been at a football match because I stupidly didn't bring a hat with me and it was kind of snowing. Bochum playing Duisburg on a Friday night, and loads of Bochum fans were um, getting people to sign a petition to complain about the fact the game was televised, the second division game on a Friday night. They wanted to complain to the German FA about televising or German league about televising of football matches. Because I didn't really speak much German, my role was just to hold the petition and say in my increasingly frozen voice, Danke, when, they, when they, <laughs> anybody signed the petition. And one person apparently asked, I didn't know what they said, if, this was, if the petition was a complaining against the weather. But then who would you, <laughs> who would you send it to? Would you leave it on the steps of a church or what? Send it to Bert Ford. <laughs> Schießt der Leifeld wieder drüber, lahmt im Mittelfeld der Neil, stolpert Rekas in der Abwehr, passt in Atelli wieder fehlt, vertändelt Kempe schon im Ansatz, greift auch Wessels noch daneben. 
Meine Hüte, der ist drin, dann singen alle Mann. Deutscher Meister, wenn jeder VfL. 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 And finally, my own choice is this wonderful anthem called the Sabutio World Cup Song from 1973, a wonderful piece of musicianship. Starts with the big band, presumably so you can get your Sabutio pitch set up with that big band FA Cup final atmosphere going on in the background as you get your 4-4-2 together. And the naked crowd. And the naked crowd. Crowd figures for you to paint. Yeah. <laughs> as it was always, li- it was listed in brackets, I think. The crowd that looked like they're in some kind of episode of Mass Hysteria from the Middle Ages as well. The kind of <laughs> naked people waving their arms. They're like the people in architectural drawings are always like that. They're always like a sort of ghost-like figure, aren't they? Spirit-like figure, picnicking. So it was a case of utilising your airfix small paints. Yes, yeah, you, or your humble enamels there, you know, enamel paints there. You, you, you know, you fill your bedroom up with a sense of cellulose, cellulose and kill yourself. Well, this song offers all the thrilling sounds of real-life international football. Can you imagine real-life international football brought to the Sabutio pitch? Are these supposed to be the Sabutio men singing? I think they possibly are. That's it's kind it's of, quite creepy. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I wouldn't sleep at night if I knew this was the little but, figures singing. Oh, yeah, they were, you know, like kind of Toy Story-like yeah, way. They creep out at night and just gather in it. In a, yeah. But I used to, when we used to play Sabutio, often the way that we played it was to... I have a sort of strange, in my mind, Jimi Hendrix... And Sabutio sort of merged in my mind because my cousin, who I used to play Sabutio with, is a bit older than me. He was a bit older and more sophisticated. So when I was 11 and he would be like 13 or 14, we used to play Sabutio and he would put a record on. And the first half would be the first half of the LP. And then, and and because it was like an old music centre where it clicked off, that was the final whistle of the half. And one, I remember that we played like like a whole kind of FA Cup. Yeah, probably the semi-finals to final to Electric Ladyland. So that's like my vision of Electric Ladyland is a sort of, you know, this weird, like... Is that the LP that has a song Manic Depression on it? Probably. Possibly. It was very (laughs) strange. And I remember also there was a Stephen Stills album as well that I also associate with Subutio. And if I hear it, I hear it, I'll just, you know, my finger, I'll start flicking, or maybe trolling, as it was known, with 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 the crook of my finger. I tried to play Catanaccio with Sabutio because I'd read about it. You know, the Inter Milan had been very successful, kind of all, <laughs> it was keeping all your men behind the ball. But then, of course, you don't score. Are they then going to the Italian teams didn't? Like I the thing in Sabutio would be that man who always shouts out, "Keep your shape." That ah. was pretty much impossible in Sabutio, was it? You know, you could never keep your shape, could you? We had an article in the Mug once about that because that, the idea that in the 19th century every team had a shape. Whether it was like a, like something made of wood, like an oblong thing, or, or a kind of hexagonal thing, and the other team had to try and steal their shape before the game, which is how this phrase managers saying, "Oh, at least we kept our shape, even though they lost the game, they didn't have the shape." Still. Yeah, they, they could because I think sometimes in order to, to retain your shape, you need to set your stall out. Yeah, you? I think that's yeah, that's another important thing and throwing your hat in the ring oh I was going to say that was the other <laughs> one yes I, I, I suddenly it's all remembered. to me now because yeah. so, I'm 58 yeah. it does take you know the, the first question I was like a two yeah. running sketch yeah. I'm now answering the first question that you asked me Dan yeah. really any manager fluid. applies for a job there's a ring and he has to aim his <laughs> bowler or trilby or whatever it is he's wearing I always wondered what sort of hat they would have there'd yeah. be obviously be an advantage certain hats would be better yeah. so presumably Jose Mourinho he must have some sort of weighted hat I think Something if they actually like inspected a, his hat... More like a frisbee. He yeah. never misses the ring, does he, Jose Mourinho, when it comes to the hat throwing? And Tony Pulis, who does wear a hat all the time, 
it's an, obviously a cap must really fly into the yeah. ring. Very yeah, well. he's exactly he's aerodynamic. Yeah, exactly. Which you wouldn't think, would you? You think that was quite an uneven hat to try and throw. Yeah, that's maybe if you've got a kind of wristy sort of flip. But as I say, if he's, you know, if Tony Pierce, he wouldn't, if he put like fishing weights round the bat, which he wouldn't, you know, which Tony Pierce, you'd think he might be the man who would weight his hat, you know. So if he threw it at you, you'd think, oh, the man's just thrown his hat at you, but actually catch you a glancing blow. Really ricochet and ricochet <laughs> into the ring. Issue 393 of When Saturday Comes is just out. Andy, what have we got this time in the magazine? Well, um, amongst other things, we've got um, a a story about how Swedish TV came to show live English football um, in 1969. Um, I know when I was... you hear, often hear about, oh, this game's being shown live in Scandinavia at three o'clock and you used to wonder why. It was, it was to do with there's a show called Tips Extra, which was um, connected to betting in, in Sweden. They have a, a dozen matches on the Swedish football pools, one of which would be the live game they showed from uh, from England. So it's a nice story about how the, the complications of them trying to set up the first game at Wolves v Sunderland game, where the, the only person at Wolves who was allowed to use the one telephone they had was the Wolves manager. So the Swedish producer's trying to phone his studio and stuff to, to make sure the transmission goes ahead. It's a time that they picked that game because the weather was really bad and it was one of the few games that were on that was on. And, and two Wolves players became famous in Sweden, David Wagstaff and Hugh Curran, because David Wagstaff crosses the goal for Hugh Curran to head in to score the winning goal. And like 20 years later, the two, I think, quite bemused now kind of middle-aged players were asked to restage this moment at what Wolves ground for Swedish TV where David Wagstaff in his obviously <laughs> civvy clothes crosses the ball for Hugh Curran to, to head in because that is apparently a famous moment in um, Swedish broadcasting history um, so there's that Harry your own column this time out is about rule changes and experimentations talking about you witnessing the sin bin experience. Yeah, that's it. They've introduced they've introduced the sin bin into sort of like the lower tiers of of, of all football now. And at the first sin binning, I saw the player who sent the defender. He was sent. It's only for dissent, not for anything else. You can only be sin bin for dissent. And the player who was sent it was in a northern league game. He is a school teacher, so there was quite a lot of speculation on when he as he walked back. You know, what he, whether he was giving himself a telling off. But the weird thing is that they, in rugby or, or ice hockey, they have a special. They do actually have a sin bin. But in but they don't have a bin. They have to. They just go back in the dugout. Well, I feel that they should have to at least sit on their hands or face the wall or something like that. But no, there's just no ceremony to it. And you talk about the uh, ten yard rule as well, and the kick in. Oh, the kick in, yeah, which was supposed to. In, in, indeed, Arsene Wenger brought that up again not that long ago, thinking that the one rule that he would change in football was to replace the throw in with a kick in. But he said, it's absolutely ridiculous, you know, that this is a game of football. Why are we throwing the ball in? He said, you know, which kind of makes some 
vague sense, I suppose. But the kicking was absolutely hopeless. It was introduced as a you could it was an alternative to the throw in, but the player had to signal that he was going to kick it by raising one of his arms in the air. I think like in one of those weird things they always do from a corner where they do with oh, the hands, yeah, don't they? Which, yeah, yeah. Then, and then, just, then, just, kick, then yeah. just kick it straight to the first defender to head away. Yeah. That's the, all the signals seem to mean that. I suppose Sabutio pioneered the kick in, really. Although you could buy throwers inners, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah. outsized figures, yeah. And yeah, so, they, yeah so, they, so they brought that in very, very briefly. It was brought in, and I think Seth Blatter said, this will improve the game and make it even faster than ever before. And strangely, Seth Blatter proved to be wrong. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? That had to be a first. There are some rule changes that stay, and one that didn't stay long was six seconds where a goalkeeper could hold the ball, which had countless people going, seconds! Mm. So, and, and this season, this strange rule of goal kicks, the fullbacks stay in the box and it's played short to them, and then they try and play it out from the back with disastrous consequences in the Championship and Football League anyway. Who thinks of these rules? Who watches a goal kick and thinks, I've got an idea? Who watches a kickoff and thinks, we need to take a person away and have one yeah. person kickoff? Well, it's like as Brian Glanville once said, about set blatter he has 50 ideas a day and 51 of them are bad that's right <laughs> but he's, he was funny with the, it's like with the um it's like with the kickoff because i didn't you know because i don't really follow you don't really follow the rule change where do you read about them in like a rule change book and i remember sort of going a few times and then thinking they've taken that ki- they've taken the kickoff backwards it has to the ball has to go forwards everyone knows that it was always a completely stupid rule because when you were a kid and you played and you have to kick it it obviously goes nearer to the opposition and you have to kick it into their half a bit like in rugby because it's like the, I suppose it's like the start of the half in rugby where you have to kick it in but you always had to kick it forward and I remember sort of noticing thinking Hang on a minute! They've just taken the they've just taken the kickoff and they've passed it straight backwards. What's the ref doing? Where's he looking? The anarchy's going to break out. But then, then someone pointed out to me that now that changed two years ago. They've been doing that for a long time. Andy, other magazine contents? Well, I should say, Dan, um, uh, Bonnie Rig Rose versus Bucky Thistle, written by yourself. Um, Bonnie Rig Rose, one of those great names from Scottish junior football, now in the Lowland League, playing Bucky Thistle um, from the Highland League. Uh, in a cup tie and um, Lowland League and Highland League teams these days um, go into a playoff to potentially get into the Scottish League I remember it was a while before I realised that Scottish junior football wasn't youth football in Scotland because my first time I used to hear about junior football was when some Scottish player was with an English club and it, so he started off with drum chapel amateurs or whoever it was and I always assumed that meant a youth team but in fact it's a separate FA um clubs around most of the kind of industrial belt of Scotland, mm. there are a few in the Highlands as well where I think the big thing is that they make a lot of income from the, so- from the social clubs and that mm. kind of stuff. clubs who get off very often bigger crowds than the lower division um, Scottish clubs very much not always the crowd isn't often stated mind you but let's not go there, there is, it, the, the thing with it is as well that it's really hard to find out the fixtures yeah. for it it's almost like it's like a sort of 80 I imagine what a rave was like in the in the late 80s you sort of try and find out where, when the game's on and yeah. you go on their website and there's nothing or it says that you know the last fixture that's listed is March the 23rd 1978 yeah. or something and you, you know you've really got to know someone who knows something who goes oh yeah or connect Talbot on yeah. 3 o'clock on Saturday there also, there. there also seems to be a fair amount of like, disproportionate amount of mayhem at Scottish junior games. I remember in the days of kind of the zine heyday, there were a few zines that covered Scottish junior football. Like one, I remember that its, its front page headline was The Largs Riot, The Truth. 
There'd been a bit of a stromash. There's no stromash, indeed. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a, there was a book, I think, called that. That was all right. Not sure what happened to that. <laughs> uh, we've also got um, our regular match of the month feature, which is where we do. Um, so they use the longest feature in the magazine each month, about four pages. We try and cover each of the divisions of the league a couple of times a season and a couple of non-league games. Ideally, a, a club we haven't covered before, or a club that's in the news for some reason. This month, we did an unusual thing where we sent somebody back to um, cover a club he'd written about before in the Match of the Month feature, which is uh, the great, I think I can say, Taylor Parks, um, going back to Bournemouth. He wrote about Bournemouth about nine years ago when they were in the lower divisions and struggling, when Eddie Howe was the manager then, Before I think before Eddie Howe left to go to Burnley then came back. And now, of course, Bournemouth are uh, established as a, a Premier League club and there's some fantastic lines in it. Um, he got homesick, didn't he, Eddie Howe? Don't, yeah. I don't yeah. think he liked tripe. That, that was the old thing. No, I don't think. I think it wasn't him. I think his family couldn't settle in the area. I think you're um, wrong there. Dan. Absolute classic. <laughs> Great lines in it. Taylor um, compares uh, Eddie Howe to um, what David Bowie. What David he said, Bowie he, said, he, says, like. he says just like David Bowie if he worked in a sports shop in Christchurch. <laughs> or David Bowie, and also David Bowie when he takes his makeup off is what Sam, Sam Allardyce is to the drummer from the Banana Splits, or Neil Warnock to a nightclub drag act. <laughs> Um, it's great. Uh, uh, Daniel Fark, uh, Norwich Money Bournemouth are playing Norwich. Um, skulks on the touchline, giving his players the thumbs up, like Paul McCartney in the Guy Fawkes mask that somebody sat on. <laughs> <laughs> If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like more, please consider becoming a member of the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon. From just $2 a month, which is around £1.55, I feel I need an economic comparison there, 155 penny sweets, perhaps, you'll get access to bonus episodes and material, plus exclusive merchandise. Find out more by heading to patreon.com slash Comes. Something a bit different now. When Saturday Comes were recently given the chance to interview Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn about his party's football policies. We sent along our deputy editor Tom Hocking to an event in Liverpool to meet him. We'll be discussing the full interview with Jeremy Corbyn and Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell in episode 3 of this podcast once it has been published in When Saturday Comes issue 394 out in the first week of December. Over to Tom. Firstly, an apology for the recording quality in this podcast. We're staying true to WSC's DIY roots with this one uh, due to limited time and equipment. As you can imagine, these politicians have uh, a few things going on, um, so we didn't have much time to arrange this. But anyway, let's talk politics. Ahead of the general election on December the 12th, Labour are pushing a raft of policies that they say will take football away from the billionaires and return it to the fans. These include, and these are their words, legislating to give supporters trust the power to appoint and remove at least two members of a club's board of directors, enabling supporters trust to purchase shares when clubs change hands, reviewing all aspects of football governance, including fan participation, ensuring that the Premier League invests 5% of income from television rights into grassroots football, and they are also committed to changing the law to allow safe standing at stadiums, the decision of which would then lie with local authorities and the clubs, rather than a blanket ban by the government. Many of these policies will be familiar to those who follow the 2017 general election closely, Um, and today I got to ask Jeremy Corbyn um, more about them, and why football is playing such a key role in Labour's bid for power in 2019. 
First up, Jeremy, thank you. I know you're very busy, so thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. Obviously, we're talking about football, um, as, as you know. Um, there have already been references in the speeches to the teams you support, mm-hmm. and Labour is pushing a raft of policies um, to do with football, and particularly focusing on fan ownership. You want to confirmation of the teams I support. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and I, I always follow Forest Green Road. Oh really? FGR. Ecological. That's the eco team for And they're doing alright, they're top of the league too. Yeah, they are, they're, they're doing well. So why have you decided to push football related policies so prominently and well, build up to this election? I am um, a football fan, I love football and I love the spirit of it and uh, two of my three sons are football obsessives and they love it. My eldest son is a football coach and runs his own soccer school. And they're all Arsenal supporters, of course. And um, what I love about football is the magic of the game, the magic of the big match, and the um, the dreams we all have at the start of the season, and the reality that kicks in in early January, and the misery that comes at the end of April and May for many supporters. But you know that's what we that's what we live for. But it's also about bringing communities together because you get a group of um, youngsters to come together to play football. And to begin with, they all want to be the striker. They all want to be the one that wins the game, or who's scoring the goals. After a while, and a bit of training and coming together, they begin to understand that it's only a team that can win a match. And whilst there are individual moments of brilliance, there always are, it is about a team. And that is a message to them, which makes life for them so much better. And uh, I, um, I sometimes go to my son's soccer school, and um, I just watch them and I listen to what he says to them and the training that he gives them. And this is any, any youngster can come along and they benefit so much from it. And so I think football is a good within the community and it's something that brings people together. I went on a visit once to uh, Burundi, parliamentary delegation I was leader of to Burundi. And we sort of thought, like, what can we take as gifts? And so I contacted Arsenal and said, could you give me some gifts to take to Burundi. They said, yes, of course, they were very generous. And they said, would you like some shirts? And I said, no, not really, because shirts are just for one player, obviously. And so instead, they gave me a humongous box of footballs. So every school we went to, we gave them a football. And that was just a gesture, because those schools then got something to play with, and those kids got something to play with together and it brought the kids together as well. It's a cheap thing, it's one thing. Football is just something that brings kids together. And also, we all talk about it all the time. Yeah. Um, a lot of people would suggest that sort of football tends to reflect the society in, in which it's played um, wider. And in that sense, does it echo the wider theme of your campaign, some of your policies, which are sort of, tend to be the people versus the ultra-rich, the ultra-rich being the, the big owners of, of the biggest clubs and the people being the fans that are now paying through the teeth their yeah. ticket prices? I mean, I get very frustrated about the, the cost of football, the cost of going to matches, the cost of season tickets, and the way in which uh, working-class communities are almost priced out of it, particularly in the Premier League clubs. Now, I understand the issues of players' wages, I understand the costs, but so I, I obviously fully get that. But our policies are that we want um, 5% of Premier League income 
to be spent on lower divisions football. So not Championship League 1 2, but lower than that. So grassroots football. Because too many clubs rely completely on volunteers, completely on the largesse of somebody to let them have somewhere to play in. I think we need a better football infrastructure. Otherwise, where are the players tomorrow coming from? But we also need the voices of football fans on the boards of clubs. And so we will make provision for registered fans organisations to elect two directors for every club. And that would mean those voices are there. Germany has a much better, a much more democratic football model, and it's very successful. Is, is that something that you would want to work towards? I'd, I'd like to. I'm, I'm very interested in, for example, the Bayern Munich models and others, and um, the involvement of fans in football in Germany is so much better, because fans all have opinions about football. Um, some of them are actually very skilled and very knowledgeable people that could actually bring a lot of good to the club. You talk of real change. Well, uh, say, football yeah. club isn't, it, yes, at one level, of course, it's a business. I understand that. But at another level, it's actually something within the community. I was talking to um, Newcastle supporters when I was in Newcastle three or four weeks ago. And I sat down with them and they said, Newcastle United is there, it's in the middle of the city, it's a very important part of the life there and the whole town, the whole city focuses around around it um, in a way that perhaps they don't in very big cities like London because um, there's obviously lots of clubs and lots of other things to do and I think we should just understand the importance of the, the feeling in the community when you've got a successful football club. So on, on the subject of you just brought Newcastle up and Mike Ashley was one of the targets of one of your speeches um, recently but these are the people that currently run the Premier League. Um, so how would you get them to accept your changes of, say, a 5% levy on, on TV deal? I would hope they would understand and accept that um, they have a role to play in promoting football. Because after all, they do benefit from the skills that come from players that start out in um, uh, amateur football, lower league football, so on and it's their responsibility also to make sure we have a thriving football community in this country and if we go on developing this massive imbalance between the Premier League and the rest of football then that's not a good look that's not a promising future and so I hope they will understand that but of course we will have those conversations with them but we're very determined that this is the direction in which we want to go. Okay, and um, one of the policies you talked about was um, getting supporters' trust to be able to elect and, and deselect board members. How do you think that would affect the way football clubs in this country are run? Um, what difference would it make? What real change, for example, would that I think have? it would mean that the rest of the directors would have to listen to what the fans are saying. And so when they're discussing ticket pricing, when they're discussing community activities, when they're discussing the general attitude of the club and the promotion of women's football within the club, then uh, I think that voice would be there. And I would hope that um, the fans elected would go to women and men. So um, this all sounds great in practice, but, but are some fan trusts ready to handle that kind of thing? I'm thinking, for example, one of your policies is that fans trust could buy shares during a takeover. Um, it's rumoured that there's a Saudi consortium wanting to take over Manchester United, for example. Would fan trusts really have the structure yet? Or would you support um, In some their, cases yeah, they structural. would, in some cases not so much. But I think we have to encourage there to be a, a strong fan structure. And that is something that the FA and the league can encourage. So there is a, a strong fans organisation. Certainly, 
Arsenal supporters are actually very well organised as an example, as are Newcastle and other supporters, I think they'd be perfectly capable of handling that. Interesting. And on the subject of Arsenal, obviously, you're a big Arsenal fan. Do you, this is slightly um, away from the policies, but now you've become Labour leader, I assume you can't, it's much more difficult to just go to a game and enjoy a game of football. Have you found your relationship has changed with the club at all since that? I, I was there two weeks ago actually for um, show races and red card event at the stadium, mm. and uh, Rachel Yankee and myself and others took questions from uh, children from mm. local primary schools, and we had a we had a great time, and they were the kids were totally switched on, and she was utterly brilliant in the answers that she gave. So, I get there when I can, I can't go as often as I'd like to, obviously. But um, I was very pleased. The last match that Arsene Wenger was the manager for, I had a, I've got a great admirer of Arsene Wenger. I had a chat with him before the match, and I've got great respect for him. And obviously, as an Arsenal supporter. We've got some fantastic memories as well. Mm, yes, of course. As a Sheffield Wednesday fan, I'll never quite forgive you for beating us in the cup final in 1993. Oh, uh, but and Andy goal. Yeah, that's but he the broke one. his nose while putting it in. Yes, he did. And there it was, was one nil, wasn't yeah. it? One nil <laughs> yeah. on the replay. Yeah, isn't um, that right? Uh, two one, I think. Two one. Yeah, extra time goal. Yeah, extra time goal from Andy Lindigan. Yeah, never forgive you for that. Do you find football comes up a lot when you're sort of waiting for shadow cabinet meetings and stuff? I mean, we've already seen that it's mentioned in the introductions. It it comes up all the time. (laughs) Also, women's football comes up quite a lot, and I do think that uh, broadcasting media should be um, made to ensure that free to air is for the women's cup finals, which is one of your policies as well. Even our policies. Yeah, Um, and you've also got a policy to ensure clubs are paying staff. Um, the living wage. Indeed, I was part of a campaign to persuade Arsenal to pay the staff the living wage, and um, I think that should apply to all clubs. But the living wage is going to become a, a national thing as well. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash when Saturday comes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry again next time for more vital, topical and half decent chatter.